0: Invite you to find the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, and verse 49. We're going to pick up reading here in just a moment in this verse, and we're going to go all the way through the end of the chapter in a message entitled Total Commitment. In the midst of a very selfish discussion among his disciples, uh, Jesus taught about humility. In the passage that immediately precedes what we're considering today, uh, he focused on what genuine humility is. Humility welcomes God because we see ourselves in a right perspective and God for who he really is. Humility uh, causes us to serve others rather than desiring always to be served by others. And then humility leads to genuine greatness. And the only place that we can really find genuine humility is in a relationship With God humility is something that gets God's attention for all the right reasons he loves and lifts us up as we relate to him in a way that honors him and sees him for who he is we arrive now at a very significant turning point in Luke's gospel which begins here and it continues for about 10 chapters all the way up to the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem Luke chapter 9, verse 49 says, Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Verse 57, now uh, it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, verse 59, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you. But let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus was on the road toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem was beginning to loom larger and larger in both his focus and his ministry. His betrayal, passion, death, resurrection, and ascension are all in front of him. So Jesus steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. The literal translation is that he stiffened his face to go to Jerusalem. There was an intense resolve about what Jesus was going to accomplish. Nothing could stop him from doing what God the Father had sent him to do. Verses 49 and 50 uh, is one of the briefest exchanges with Jesus in the Gospels. John makes a statement, and Jesus answers it, and that's about it. John comes to Jesus. Evidently, they had gone somewhere, and they'd seen a crowd of people. In the midst of that crowd of people was a man who was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. But they forbade him to do so because he was not following with them, nor did they know him. He was not a part of their group, so they stopped him from doing what he was doing. And Jesus said, listen, don't forbid him because he who is not against us is on our side. Now, I think this is a simple note of warning for us that if someone is for Jesus, we need to be discerning, of course, about what they're teaching and what they're doing but we also need to be cautious not to condemn them simply because we do not know them or fully understand what it is that they're doing. Use your discernment, but if they're for Jesus, then they apparently, according to Jesus, are with us in that sense. So we always use the Scripture to filter anything that we see. We trust the Holy Spirit to give us discernment, and then we go from there. Now, verses 51 through 56, Jesus began his journey, and he sent his messengers on ahead. Uh, They came into a Samaritan village to get things ready for Jesus. But the people there did not welcome Jesus because he was heading toward Jerusalem. Now, if you know just a little bit of Bible background, you'll know that there was a mutual hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans that had been building for centuries. The Samaritans had intermarried with their Assyrian conquerors. The Jews very much looked down on the Samaritans because of their mixed heritage and their confused religious beliefs. The Samaritans had set up a rival temple on Mount Gerizim. They only held to the Pentateuch and so on, so there were some significant differences. And when they did not receive them in preparation for Jesus, the response of James and John is not altogether surprising. They asked, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Now, they were familiar with what had taken place with Elijah. Maybe it's a particular reference to the calling down of the fire on the prophets of Baal and the victory of God that was very evident. But at any rate, the situation was not the same. And the problem was that Jesus was in a position where he had already taught them a different ethic of relating, and now they're wanting to bring down the fire and bring down the judgment. Just three chapters prior to this, in Luke chapter 6, he said, I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. So he's saying the merciful are those who have received mercy, and those who have received mercy should give even more mercy. So Jesus rebukes them, and he says, The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but instead to save them. And they went on to another village. I want us to spend the balance of our time in verses 57 to 62 with an emphasis on what it means to have total commitment. Now, I want to put you at ease at the outset of uh, this message in the sense that this is not a try harder, do better message. This is helping us get to the place where we understand the significance of a daily surrender to Jesus and of a continual filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can live lives Of commitment that are consistent with who Jesus has called us to be and also with the reality of understanding that none of us are totally committed. We are on a path toward heaven. We're serving the Lord in the here and now, but we are all works in progress and we are growing into a greater likeness of Jesus along the way by the same grace God saved us with He's extending that grace to us each day in our faithfulness to him. There was a study that was conducted some years ago on why particular musicians and athletes excel while others remain mediocre. In his book, The Social Animal, David Brooks pointed to research that demonstrates a common denominator for excellence in any given field. And what he found was that the common denominator is a long-term commitment to discipline and to practice. Uh, Gary McPherson studied 157 randomly selected children as they picked out and learned a musical instrument. Some went on to be fine musicians, while others faltered. McPherson searched for the traits that separated those who progressed and those who did not. He found out that normal predictors like IQ or particular aptitude or things that we would point to as potential, in fact, were not the best predictors for success. He said the best predictor for success was how long the students determined they were going to play when they began to play the instrument. The ones who said they were only going to play a short time didn't have very much proficiency at all. Those who said they were going to play for a longer amount of time had modest success. But those who said, I want to be a musician. I'm going to play for my whole life. It was those children who soared. And I think likewise, as growing Christians, our approach to discipleship should be with a similar attitude. My heart should be, I want to follow Jesus for my entire life, with total commitment i'm going to surrender to him daily i'm going to depend on his word i'm going to be empowered by his spirit and i want to be in it for the long haul so the call to follow jesus is a call to total commitment it's not about gaining salvation because salvation is a grace gift these are examples of discipleship and in part evidence of our salvation So here's our question for these few remaining moments that we have together. How can we live with total commitment as disciples of Jesus? Well, first, if you want to live with total commitment, you need to understand your commitment. You need to understand your commitment. Verses 57 and 58. Now, I don't know about you, but I can picture here in my mind's eye, Jesus walking along a dusty road with his disciples, uh, someone comes up behind him excitedly. He's approaching Jesus as a student would approach a teacher. Matthew's gospel identifies him as a scribe. Scribes were highly educated Pharisees who were responsible uh, for copying the Jewish scriptures. Uh, they were usually very devout and well-respected people. They also lived lives of relative comfort and ease because of the position they were in. The man says to Jesus, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Now at first, this seems like a clear enough statement from a volunteer disciple. He's saying to Jesus, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever it is that you go. But evidently, Jesus was not satisfied with what he heard because he said back to the man, foxes have holes, And birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus said back to this man, know your commitment, essentially. Know what it is that you're getting into. Know that it can be a difficult calling along the way to be totally committed to Christ. And understanding that following Jesus includes not just imitating him, but entering into this call to commitment and understanding what we are getting into. And you see there's a trend in many churches today uh, to lower the commitment level in order to attract people. And the attractional model works for a while. You can grow in numbers and it can seem at least on the surface like the church is strong and growing. But the question is, what is the church strong and growing into? And is there at the core of it all a heart for discipleship? There's some churches that don't like to talk about sin other than just very generally because we don't want to offend anybody. We want to focus on the positive. We want to be sure that people are comfortable. We want to be sure that we're upbeat so that we're trying to attract people. But as a result of that, there are countless numbers of people who might call themselves Christians but they're being failed by the church itself because there's not an understanding of what true commitment really is and what discipleship really looks like. George Gallup, the researcher, said that there might be as few as 10% of evangelical Christians who are deeply committed to Christ. Not just saying that they are followers of Christ, but are deeply committed. And he said, furthermore, There are many people in churches that don't even know the basics of the faith. And their lives don't look much different than what the world looks like. And that's not what it is to be called to be a disciple. When you come and follow Jesus, you will recognize the call to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow him. You will realize that this world is not your home you will understand that there will be times of discomfort, there will be times of outright rejection, but you will be able to hold steady because you're holding steady by the power of God and not by your own efforts. And I say to you today that I believe that Jesus Christ was an honest evangelist. And I think likewise we should be honest evangelists. Now we're not told if the man followed Jesus or not. But we know from the next two examples that the ones that were given the opportunity to follow Jesus both found excuses to go home. Understand your commitment. Second, if you want to live with total commitment, do not delay your commitment. Verses 59 and 60. The second man thought following Jesus was important, but he didn't think that following Jesus was more important than his family obligations. Jesus says to him, follow me, but he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, we don't know if the man's father had just died or if he was near death or maybe he had a long time to go in life. I think it's likely that he was either near death or he had a long time to go in life because if the man had just died, it's unlikely that uh, this person would actually be following Jesus in that moment. The old preacher G. G Campbell Morgan told a story about a traveler in the Middle East who was enlisting a young man to be his guide. And he said the man uh, said that he couldn't be his guide because he had to go and bury his father. So the traveler expressed his sympathy to him, and he thought that the father had died, and he learned instead it was an expression that the man needed to be with his father as long as he was alive, so therefore he couldn't help him. That's a very possible interpretation here as well. I think the man was probably saying to Jesus, after my father is gone, I will follow you. Now the fifth of the 10 commandments instructs us to honor our father and our mother. The apostle Paul indicated that if we don't care for our own families that we're worse than unbelievers and we've denied the faith. So Jesus is not negating either of those ideas. In fact, Jesus spoke against religious leaders of that day who neglected their parents. But the greater point is, if your commitment to family is greater than your commitment to Jesus and to the kingdom of God, you have your priorities wrong. We're learning here that it is possible to be sinfully selfish about family. Where we exalt it over kingdom purposes, family becomes the priority over our relationship with God, and trouble follows. There's an article that was written just a little while back entitled, 10 Reasons Even Committed Church Attenders Are Attending Church Less Often. Now, obviously, this is a pre-COVID-19 illustration, but even so, it speaks to the tipping point that many churches are at. What research is finding is that even the core of people who would call themselves committed followers of Jesus are less and less engaged in the life of the church and, frankly, in the life of being a disciple. And one of the main reasons that he found in that particular article and cited in that particular article that people are missing church is a higher focus on kids' activities, which comes back to the family. And he said there are families that go missing from churches for weeks and months on end because things like travel sports or they pick some other area of leisure and they're nowhere to be found in the work of the Lord. Now, I would like to tell you that Cross Lanes Baptist Church is immune to this particular problem, but that would not be true. In fact, attendance patterns over the last five years have shown a marked difference in this area. So much so that, particularly pre COVID, we would have as many as 40% or more unique attenders in any given month than we do in our average attendance. Telling us that many people are only even showing up every third Sunday, or on average, give or take, maybe a little less or a little more. You say, well, it's not about church attendance, and I would agree with you wholeheartedly, it's not about church attendance, but that's just a simple marker whereby we can determine how engaged and plugged in we really are, and one of the most significant concerns that I have in this particular dilemma that we're experiencing right now in the COVID time is, what's it going to look like a year from now, or 18 months from now, how many are going to stay truly engaged? And I praise God for those who are. There are so many people that have particular family circumstances and health issues and age limitations and so on where they're not able to be here in present, in person right now, but are staying engaged and are staying faithful. And I'm getting messages and I'm hearing from many of you who are in that very situation. This is not what I'm talking about today. I'm talking about a simple illustration that Jesus gives in relationship to not placing anything over our commitment to him. So Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus' response seems harsh, but the dead can't bury anyone. And it either means that the spiritually dead should do this, or it was an inconsequential statement. But I think the idea is even the best excuse possible should not get in our way of a total commitment as a disciple. Listen to what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10 and verse 29 to 30. I tell you the truth, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age and in the age to come eternal life. Family is necessary, it is foundational, it is good, but it is not ultimate. If you treat family as the ultimate and Jesus as the add-on, don't be surprised when your children or your grandchildren see Jesus as expendable and unimportant. Just forget the shocked face when things go awry. If you have set a pattern that says that Jesus is less than the number one priority. And then if you want to live with total commitment, keep looking forward in your commitment. Keep looking forward in your commitment. Verses 61 and 62. Now the third person comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, I will follow you. But let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. Now the request seems minor enough. Uh, And again, it has an allusion to the life of Elijah. uh, When Elijah saw Elisha plowing behind his oxen and approached him and threw his cloak over him and indicated his call to discipleship, Uh, Elijah accepted, but he begged to go and kiss his father and his mother goodbye. You remember uh, Elijah permitted him to do that. Jesus was well aware of this Old Testament story. But Jesus is driving more now toward the plowing analogy and the importance of looking forward in your commitment to Christ. And he says, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. It was understood that you couldn't look backwards and at the same time drive a straight furrow in front of you. You had to keep forward focused. And what is warned against here is a desire to hang on to the old life. It's a warning against uh, not looking back to what you've left behind and remembering the comforts of home and dreaming of how life might have been had you not followed Jesus. It's a forward focus. And I think we've got to have that same determination as a farmer plowing in the field who does it with all his strength and is always looking forward. You see, in plowing a field in that day, a farmer would keep the rows straight by focusing on an object in front of him, uh, like a tree or maybe a post or something that was in the field. And if the farmer started to plow and kept looking behind him, he could never drive a straight furrow in front of him. Just like you can't drive in a forward direction if you're constantly looking behind you. And that's the call to us, is to keep our eyes focused forward without any delay, without any regret, and without any lack of clarity on where we're headed. I love the story of William Borden from history. He was from a wealthy Chicago family, and in 1904, maybe 1905, along about the age of 18, he traveled around the world. He followed that with a very brilliant education at Yale and also Princeton Seminary, and he committed his life that he was going to win Muslims for Christ. So before he left, he gave away uh, the equivalent of what would amount to $10 million or more dollars today, and he headed toward this mission that God had called him to. Twenty-six years old, he leaves for Egypt. That would be the final year of his life because in Cairo he would contract meningitis. As he lay dying, he scribbled this note. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. I believe that's the kind of attitude that Christ is calling us to. You cannot keep one foot in the world just in case things don't turn out in following Jesus. And I would take you a step further in that. I've never known anybody, not one time in my entire life, have I ever talked to anyone who committed themselves to following Jesus Christ and down the road said, I'm sorry that I did. I've not found anybody yet. Now, I may run across somebody someday that says that or who made a false profession to begin with, But I'm telling you, people that know the Lord, that are filled with His Spirit, they're willing to endure hardships and discouragement, difficulties along the way. But here's one thing that they find consistently as they walk their life with God. God is faithful even when we are faithless. And He helps us toward that commitment to Him. Now let me give you this statement and I'm going to close. Jesus calls us to a life of total commitment, which requires us to reorder all of our priorities toward him. Jesus is not just someone who rounds out your life and makes your life a bit nicer. He is not a spoke in the wheel of your life. Jesus is the hub. He's the center of it all. I like the way William Culbertson put it in Listening to the Giants. He said, I find that discipleship means first, truly living. It does not just mean a joy ride to heaven. It does not mean that there are no trials and burdens. But it does mean peace in your soul and joy in your heart. And a sense, a supreme sense of the smile of the Lord upon you. It is living. And discipleship means that you're using the time that you have on earth to the best possible advantage. Total commitment cannot be casual and based on convenience. Total commitment cannot be delayed and put off until you find time. And total commitment cannot be exercised if you're constantly looking backwards. Say, preacher, when's the time to follow Jesus? Today. Today is the day of salvation. When is the time to receive forgiveness of your sins? There's no time better than now. When is the time to be sure that you're on your way to heaven and that your life is set toward a heavenly course? There's no better time than now. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He is the author and the finisher of our faith, and he will never disappoint you. But he's calling you to a life of commitment to him. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. I don't know where folks are spiritually, either here in the room or joining with us online, or perhaps we'll be listening to this message even later on. But God knows exactly where you are. He knows whether or not you know him through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that there is a Savior who lived and died and now lives again. He gave his life on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty that you deserved on your behalf because he loves you. And the Bible says if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the call to salvation. This is the call of the good news to come to Jesus. I wonder if there'd be anybody who would say, I want to come to know Jesus right now. You can pray and let the Lord know what your desire is. Say, Lord Jesus, I'm turning from my sins and I'm turning to the Savior. I want to know today that I belong to you and you belong to me and I want to live a life as a disciple. Thank you for saving my soul. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it's so easy for us to drift. It's so easy for us to lose sight of our priorities and to get lukewarm and, and not be as passionate as we should be. I wonder today, is God stirring somebody's heart, is, is the Holy Spirit saying to you that, that this casual Christianity, it's, it's not where you want to live your life. It's not how you want to invest yourself. But you want to be totally committed to Christ. You want to understand what you've gotten yourself into and be living your life with a sense of urgency. As you know God will renew your spiritual life today? We're just as spiritual as we want to be. Will you trust Him? Will you ask Him to help you? And will you thank Him for you, His grace? might be a good opportunity for some of us to pray for our families. Maybe you're a dedicated... Christian mother, father, grandmother, grandfather, brother, sister, but you know people in your life who are not, and because you love them and you know God loves them, you want to pray right now in this moment and just say, God, touch their heart. Stir their soul that they would have a desire for you. And I believe God will hear that prayer. God, we thank you today for your word. Thank you for the call of Jesus. I thank you for all who have heard that call to deny self and take up the cross daily and follow him. And I pray that we would be a church that's not satisfied with bare minimum. Help us to understand what it means to make disciples. Help us to understand what it means to live lives that are totally committed and for that to be the reality in our lives by your grace. And I pray, Father, for the lost to be saved. I pray that even in these strange times that you would give us divine appointments to speak to people that maybe are more open than they've ever been before to spiritual matters, that they're more open to what it even means to know you. And I pray that we would see the fruit of salvation, that our hearts would be, would be burdened when we don't, and that we would pray and share to that end. And we'll give this time of close over to you. We thank you, Jesus, for your love that's everlasting, and we pray it in your name. Amen.